0: We're going through the Sermon on the Mount, and tonight's passage is Matthew five twenty. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore... Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you that you've given us a day without rain. Um, Though we do pray for those in the Carolinas who are experiencing lots of rain right now, we ask that you would be with them, uh, protect them, uh, give them a sense of your presence. Lord, to realize that that we may feel like we're in uh, storms in our own lives up here, and so wherever we are, uh, gracious God, would you give us a sense of your grace, your mercy, that you are near us, helping us to follow you. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So one of the things that happens, maybe you're starting to see this with your own parents, is they start to get old. And what I mean by that is they start to, well, think like old people, uh, not adapt to technology very well. Mom, if you're listening, I do love you. Um, But I was visiting her a a few years ago, two years ago, three years ago, and um, I need to borrow her computer. I need to access the internet. And I said, Mom, can I use your computer? You know, my phone's not working or whatever. And she says, yeah, sure, that's fine. Just go grab my laptop and bring it in here. So she's savvy enough. She has Wi-Fi throughout the house. It's good. And so I, I open it up, and, and I see this little icon. And it says, America Online. And it's the $20 a month, you know, America Online. And I was like, Mom, what's this What's this AOL uh, thing doing here? And she says, oh, that's how I get online. I said, but you have Wi-Fi. And she said, I know, but that's how I use the Wi-Fi. And I said, you don't need AOL, Mom, you need a browser. How about Chrome or Firefox? And she said, well, how am I gonna check my news? And I said, from a news site. How am I gonna check my weather? I said, on a weather site. Well, with AOL, it's all on the front page. Touche, Mom, (laughs) (laughs) touche. But it's 20 bucks a month and I bet you could do something else with 240 bucks a year because you're already paying for Wi-Fi. She did eventually get rid of her AOL because she's got something better. She's got Wi-Fi. She doesn't need to access the internet through dial-up or pay for dial-up to access the internet. When Jesus comes on the scene, this question starts to come up. What you're doing, you're ushering in something newer and something better. Is it time to get rid of some of the old stuff? That's what's really happening here. Jesus comes on the scene, he's misunderstood. People understand the kingdom you're ushering in is great. The kingdom is more powerful. You are a more glorious king than we've ever seen before. Is the law now as outdated as AOL? Do we now have kingdom DSL, kingdom Wi-Fi? No need for dial-up AOL. Now, why would they start to wonder this? Jesus has been on the scene. His ministry is is public. It is sort of booming. He's healing people. They're seeing, wow, there's lots of awe and wonder wherever Jesus goes. The, the, The brokenness of the world seems to retreat from wherever he is. And he's been teaching, and we, we saw him teach on the Beatitudes, the blessed are's, this kingdom character. He, here is what the kingdom character looks like. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are those who are persecuted, you remember? And then he says, my people are salt and light. Kingdom character in action. We, we change the world because of God's work in and through us. But so far, no law. You keep talking about what it means to be blessed, you keep talking about what it looks like to follow your kingdom, follow the king in a kingdom, but so far you're not talking about the law because in this day and age, the way people thought about the law is front and center, sort of everything. In other ways, Jesus is confusing. He he heals on the Sabbath, seemingly breaking the law. He spends time with prostitutes and tax collectors, which is, by the way, what salt and light does. So we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching what it looks like to live in his kingdom, what it means to live in his kingdom, how we live in the kingdom. So what about the law? Does it mean anything to him? Is it outdated? Does Jesus pick and choose when it comes to the Bible? Do Christians pick and choose when it comes to the Bible? And he says, no, or at least he says, I don't. And those in my kingdom shouldn't either. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Which is shorthand for the Old Testament. Now every now and then you'll hear someone say, you know, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus never claims to be God. He never claims to be divine. That sort of doctrine developed later. That's a Paul idea. That's a John idea. That's not a Matthew, Mark, Luke idea. Whenever somebody asks me that, whenever I see somebody you know getting interviewed and they're proposing this, I always wonder: like, what else do you think he means when he says, I did not come to abolish the law? Let's figure this fill in the blank here. Don't think that I've come from class to abolish the law. No, that doesn't work. Don't think I've come from the store to abolish the law. No, right, obviously this doesn't make any sense. Don't think I have come from home two minutes away. No, don't think I've come from heaven to abolish the law. Don't think I've come from somewhere else transcendent to abolish something else that is transcendent. As Saint Augustine says, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. And Jesus doesn't want us to believe ourselves, he wants us to believe him. As God, he wrote the Bible. As man, it is his Bible, the Old Testament. And as the God-man, he wants us to love it as he loves it. But it does beg the question, so then how do we relate to the law? Here's what we tend to hear when we read a passage like this. I have not come to abolish the law, but to abolish the law. That's what we tend to hear when we read a passage like this. But He says, don't think that I've come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. I don't want to squash it. I don't want to move it aside. I came to fulfill it. I came to honor it. I came to love it in ways that you haven't and won't. I've come to change your relationship to the law. And part of that has changed the way that you think about it because you think about it the wrong way. And that's sort of a big theme next week. It's why I don't lead with the law, but I certainly don't want to move it off to the side. There's something more important, namely me. So when Jesus says that he's come to fulfill the law, it's a huge topic, but here are some of the things to think about. I've come to interpret it for you. Because not all interpretations are the same. Some are broken, some are dangerous, some will kill you. I've come to obey it. For the first time that anyone's ever really truly obeyed it, I came to do that because nobody else has, not really. And there's another sense of his fulfilling the law that we're going to get to in a minute. So one of the things Jesus is doing is he's... He wants the Pharisees to see him. He's like, i got my eyes on you. there There are misinterpretations of the law. People prioritize it in the wrong way. They prioritize the wrong aspects of the law. They make up aspects of the law. I'm watching you, religious leaders. I don't want to move it aside, but I want to interpret it for you. I want to show you what it really is, what it was really intended to be, and I'm going to obey it. In verse 18, Jesus basically says, the law is going to be around for a long time. Long after I ascend back into heaven, as long as heaven and earth are here, the law will be here. Now, I know that a number of you have been talking to you and hearing that there's a lot of you are going to pick up a, a Bible reading plan and, and go through the Bible, and I think this is fantastic. And one of the reasons this is fantastic is because this is how we come to know what, we, what it is that we say we believe. Uh, how we know who God is and what he's actually like and not just by hearsay. But one of the things, and we'll see this in the weeks to come, is you can take a good thing like that and make it a new law. You can sort of look down on yourself or others for missing a day or a week when the Bible doesn't really talk that way. So prize it and love it and run to it, but don't make it a law. So here's what Jesus is saying about the law, what he's saying about his Bible, the Old Testament. It's binding. It's meant for us to listen to it. It's meant for us to obey it. One of the great questions that you guys often pose to me in one way or another is, what is God's will for my life? Should I date this person? Should I not date this person? Should I take a job in this city or this city? How should I balance my time? And these aren't bad questions. They're just not the main question. The question should be, not who or what or why, but rather, do these people encourage me to follow Jesus? Do these people, these choices, these cities, these job options, will they encourage me to follow Jesus? And will I turn away from them if they don't? Because Jesus says, listen, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, I would never say that the Bible, the law, the Old Testament, I would never say that it's unimportant. In fact, you should not only think that it's important, you should act like it's important. And so at some point, some of you may think yourself, or you may have had conversations like this, you Christians all say the same thing. You pay lip service to the Bible, and you say that we can't pick and choose from the Bible, but that's exactly what you do. You pick and you choose from the Bible. There's a common critique, And, and you hear, for example, it was on CNN recently, somebody was on there, Christians talk about gay marriage and say this is a sin, but they don't ever talk about eating shellfish as if that were a sin. And here's the logic verses like talking about gay marriage would come from like Leviticus 18 and verses talking about shellfish would come from Leviticus 11. That's pretty close to each other. So do Christians pick and choose? For consistency's sake, it would appear there are two options. Both are binding or neither are binding. Huh, I see what you mean. Maybe Christians do pick and choose. Now, I don't think that we do Or I don't think we should. I think there are valid ways to sort of think like this, and we'll get there in a second. But Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to interpret it for you. I've come to obey it like no one else has, but there's more. A few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus coming on the scene, and he's the last great prophet, priest, and king. You guys remember this? If living in his kingdom, we learn to bow before him as a king, listen to him as a prophet, accept his sacrifice as a priest. That's what it means to be rightly related to Jesus. I don't know if this is kind of heady. This is how we have to do it tonight. There's an aspect of the Old Testament law that corresponds with each office of Jesus, okay? So there's an aspect of the law that corresponds with he's a prophet. He gets to tell us what is right and true, the moral law, Ten Commandments kind of stuff. All right, He's a priest, so he gets to tell us how to think about right, ceremonial, sacrificial kind of stuff in the Bible, and he's a king, civil aspects of the law. You see, there's a, there's a correlation, all three. and all three offices were in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills the law by transforming all three in the New Testament and beyond. Okay. Ceremonial laws had to do with what kind of sacrifices you could make, where you could sacrifice them, what you had to wear when you sacrificed them, what you had to look like when you sacrificed them, what kind of foods you had been eating like shellfish when you had to sacrifice them. You see, God is showing, I am holy, you are other, you need to be pure to make a sacrifice to me. Jesus is the final priest. He's the final sacrifice. He's offered himself a perfect sacrifice so that we no longer have to be perfectly clothed and eaten and everything. We don't have to deal with all of that because he did it for us. He fulfilled that aspect of the law. It's also why we don't offer sacrifices anymore. You hear me? Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that's temple language, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. He's not saying throw that stuff away, he's saying remember it. So that you can remember what I've done for you. All the ceremonial stuff shows you something of the holiness of God, what you need to approach Him, and I did it for you. I'm not throwing it away. I want you to remember that. And I want you to see me every time you see a passage like that, because every sacrifice points with one giant arrow to me. He fulfills the sacrifices. And by faith in him, we no longer have to worry about what we eat or dress like or when or where to make sacrifices. He's already done it. As the final king, ushering in his kingdom, we realize that his kingdom transcends ethnicities, nationalities, flags, languages, The new and last king of the Bible is not merely the king of Israel. He's the king of kings. That's what that means. He's the king of the nations, all the nations. And so if somebody broke the moral law in the Old Testament, they had civil laws to deal with. Okay, so you lied, and now we have a civil law to punish you. If you commit adultery, moral law, we have a civil law to punish you because the kingdom of God and Israel were intertwined. But now we have the last king who is the king of all the nations. So we don't deal with civil laws in the Old Testament because it's not one nation. Does that make sense? That's what Christians mean every Sunday when they say, I believe in the holy Catholic church. Catholic means universal. Universal. What we're saying is, I don't believe in the, I don't merely believe in the God of Israel. I believe that that God is the God of the nations. You see. All right. So in this kingdom, the harshest sort of civil punishment that there is would be excommunication. It's separate from this kingdom on earth, and it's a big deal. So lots of laws are no longer in effect, but not because Jesus has abandoned them or we have abandoned them, but because we're to look and see how does this point to Jesus and what he has done? He's making the kingdom bigger. It's no longer Israel. It's for the world. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth, not just Palestine. Christ has fulfilled them by being the final prophet and priest and king, but as a prophet, he's still very much telling us what is simply right and what is wrong. The morality of the kingdom is timeless, even if the ceremonies aren't, and even if Israel wasn't, the morality is timeless. Lying and stealing and sexual immorality and blasphemy are still antithetical to kingdom character. And carrying this kind of character around that listens to Jesus is how we are salt and light. And somebody says, you Christians just pick and choose. You say that something like gay marriage would be a sin, but eating shellfish is not tell me how that works. And you can say, you're right, it sounds complicated. And I heard somebody talk about a lot of prophet, priests and something, and I don't remember how that works. But what I found is if I simply read the New Testament and listen to what Jesus has to say about following him, he won't lead me astray. That when Jesus says in Mark 7 that all food is clean, I don't know why it's clean, but I believe him. And when Jesus says in Hebrews 10, that the marriage bed is for those who are married, I don't know why, but I believe him. And when Jesus says that I shouldn't lie, but I should tell the truth, I believe him. When he says that I should be hospitable and kind to those who are mistreated, I believe him. Because his words are trustworthy and true, and I can can obey him. You see, Jesus is Lord. The king of kings, and he's trustworthy. And I want to honor him by obeying him. The last verse in this passage says, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the Old Testament teachers, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus has sobering words for us here. If the Bible is unimportant to us, if Jesus' word is unimportant to us, that is a sign of profound unhealthiness. And left unchecked, the end is destruction, being left out of the kingdom. And so we ask Jesus to warm our hearts to his words. If we're to honor our Lord, we have to listen to his words. in a way that makes us more righteous than the Pharisees, okay? If you've been hanging around RUF for a while, I hope you're thinking, that sounds really strange. Hang with me. How in the world can we be more righteous than the Pharisees? How can we be more righteous than the Old Testament teachers, the Old Testament pastors, the Old Testament leaders? we're going to see in the weeks to come they were obsessed with outward righteousness doing the right thing but almost completely neglecting the heart so do the right action for whatever motive and you're good you've done the right thing you've checked the box and jesus is going to spend some time saying you can check the box and not do the right thing you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons and so if, if he were to ask them, "Can you? would you rather do the right thing for the wrong reason or the wrong thing for the right reason, they would say, what? Just do the right thing and don't do the wrong thing. What do you mean for the right and wrong reasons? They almost missed the point. This really helps us understand what Jesus is getting at here because when he says your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, what I think he's getting at, driving it is Your righteousness has to run much deeper. It has to penetrate your heart, and not just what you do. Not just your actions, but your motivations. Not just what people can see, but what you can hide. The righteousness has to penetrate far deeper than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because of course Jesus is after our actions, of course he is, but he's after something much more than that. He wants our hearts, our motivations. Because he knows that we can fake our actions. He also knows that we cannot fake our heart. He wants our motivations as much as he wants our actions. So if if we would be followers of Jesus, if we would have kingdom character, if we would live with a kingdom ethic, we have to learn to let the Bible stand over us and be authoritative to work in us, to show us our heart's motives, right and wrong, so that we learn to obey. But let me encourage you with these two things regarding this. Jesus gets the last word in the Gospel of Matthew. Last words in the Gospel of Matthew, what we call the Great Commission. Here's what Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. How do we do this? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, here we go, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right, two things that are encouraging about this. The first is, I'm with you. Okay? I'm with you. We've got similar language in this passage. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus says something like that in Matthew 5. Great in the kingdom are those who teach what I command. What What, does he observe? what is it, what are, what does he taught? It's the Bible. We have to learn the Bible. We have to teach the Bible, but he goes with us. And whenever Jesus goes with somebody, what that means is he is empowering them. He's empowering them. He's changing our nature. He's going to change our desires. He's going to change our motivations. He knows that we're weak, and He intends to strengthen us. I'm changing you. I'm growing you. I'm going with you. It's encouraging. The second thing of, the second bit of encouragement, I think, is probably the most encouraging. As Jesus empowers us, and as He goes with us, as we follow him, as we, as we learn to obey, as he works his word deep into our heart, it will always be inadequate. Always. Every time. Even if you don't see where it is inadequate, it will be. There's no way that our obedience could fill the law. Not like Jesus did we will always have a fundamental weakness. So even with the strength of Jesus enabling us, we still need him to do something more than just enable us. We need him to give us his own righteousness. We need him to keep the law for us. We need him to be for us what we cannot be for ourselves. The second encouragement is really a reminder. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We can't be hypocrites, right? He's after our our actions as much as he's after our motivations, but our righteousness will never be enough. He also says, It's the poor in spirit. Those who don't have a righteousness of their own who get into the kingdom of heaven. He's not schizophrenic. He's saying this right next to each other. His word has got to matter to us if he matters to us. But we're never going to be good enough to get into the kingdom of heaven. His righteousness given to us, received by faith alone, Fuels us and encourages us not to give up in our weakness. Knowing that He goes with us reminds us that we're not doing this alone. He has given us His righteousness and He has given us Himself. He's not inconsistent. His law is good and right and true, and He has fulfilled it for us, and He calls us to follow Him, to grow in righteousness. Ourselves, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word, and and we ask that you would speak to us through it. Um, some weeks I feel like I'm kind of all over the place, and yet yeah, we trust your Spirit, and so we ask that you would help us to love your Word, and we ask that you would help us to love you. Most importantly. Uh, And to remember that in Christ, we have everything that we need. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's sing.